This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up tonight, we'd like to welcome you to Bite Into It. Uh, on deck, Cassie Wright. Yes, very excited to be here. And myself, Vanessa. Thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, we are going to be listening to... Uh, some interviews with digital artist Betty Sargent and we'll also be chatting to Code for Australia's Alvaro Maz who's got more opportunities to apply digital solutions in civic spaces. So if that floats your boat then do stick around. In news tonight, Google has released Android O to developers, promising better battery life and notifications. So what they like to do over at Google is, um, this is the second year in a row, they've made a developer preview for the next version of their phone's um, operating system available to developers to get in there really early and start making changes. And I guess, you know, they need to do that to uh, to keep up their market share and keep the, uh, the business people happy, but also to keep the developers happy and making sure that they're exploiting all the features that are built into to the phone. Um, so really proclaiming a lot better battery life is a big um, draw card for devs who it'll be interesting to see if they end up just using more processing power with their apps, knowing that they can get away with it or if um, they start rewriting their notification features for apps that already exist to take advantage of different things in uh, in the user set there. So yeah, that'll be kind of, that'll be kind of interesting. Google isn't telling us yet everything that's coming in version O, but uh there's something about a marquee feature which is going to affect the battery life, so that's kind of cool, um, worth looking into if you're a dev. They've also put additional automatic limits on what apps can do in the background, so that will have really big impact on performance. Uh, the three main areas they were looking at were implicit broadcasts, background services and location updates. And I know every time I open any of those mapping type services, it just sucks all of the processing power away from everything else. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in that space. Cassie, what's caught your eye in news? Well, it's another thing related to Google, I suppose, but uh, what isn't these days? <laughs> it's very hard not to find something. But uh, you might have heard this week, Vanessa, actually, that there's been a bit of furor around YouTube and their new and improved, uh, air quotes there, restricted mode that they'd deployed uh, recently. So basically, I mean, most people are familiar with the concept of a restricted mode. Uh, it's something that you can put on your own device to filter out inappropriate content from uh, from the web. But it's also something that you can put on your family's devices or, you know, your, your employees' devices. Yeah, so um, it's usually something you do to monitor children's access yeah, or students' access or something like it's that. It's what you would do. And you can also, um, if you're an, a computer administrator, you can lock it so no one else can change that back. Um, what actually happened and what a lot of YouTube creators were coming out and, and seeing was on restricted mode, any video, not every single video, but a lot of videos with LGBTIQ content were being restricted. Um, and you have to remember as well that these aren't, you know, we're not talking about porn 
Um, we're talking about videos often from queer teens themselves where they're sharing their coming out story or s- speaking about their girlfriend or someone they have a crush on or documenting their transition, um, you know, from through, gen- through the gender spectrum and, and different things. And these YouTube videos are really powerful and really important, especially uh, I've, I've known friends who uh, for things like gender have felt quite alone, but they've been able to watch someone's transition over time. Um, you get a lot of these YouTube stars like Tyler Oakley and uh, j- just to name one that thrive of the question and answers coming in because of that strong community and for them to be cut off from vulnerable, often young people who need them the most is really quite frightening. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're talking about a nanny state here, just to clarify, and um, there's heaps of stuff online about this, but the restricted mode doesn't censor stuff saying, I hate gay people. Those videos are still there. Wow. Uh, videos about like, you know, racism and xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, they're still on the site, um, but not the content to, to people who need it the most. And because of various pressures there. But um, it's interesting to see what happens. And uh, YouTube has come out and responded and said it's a glitch. It's not their intention. Uh, and so they haven't been manually flagging these videos. It's not, it's, it's not that. But, it's another and, case of a clumsy, uh, clumsily implemented algorithm. And it's also that people might flag it because they, oh, that's offensive. I don't want my children to be led down that path. Um, mm. But yeah, I think even more importantly for me, it really rings true how important community media is. And um, we're lucky here at Triple R, we have Queer the Queer the Way on at midnight tonight. Um, so if you want some some good local queer content, you can listen there. But uh, in Melbourne, we've got Joy as our uh, queer community radio station. Uh, Sin, the youth radio station, also has Queries, which is their own queer show. So we're really lucky, but it's just ringing true how important it is to still have queer voices on the air and young queer voices on the air because YouTube isn't the free-for-all that we thought it would be. It also brings up um, a lot of recurring issues for us in that lots of tech companies don't want to uh, own their responsibility in terms of editorialising and we're starting to see pushback on that. So even this week, there's been a news story about Google having to respond to advertisers on its platforms and saying that, you know, it's not policing YouTube content about hate speech well enough and advertisers don't want their content coming up next to hate speech. Um, Therefore, there have been big budgets pulled from any uh, sort of YouTube spend and Google's actually had to respond and say, we're going to put in a qualified team of, of manual reviewers to flag this sort of stuff so that your ad spend isn't going there. So when the dollars are involved, um, the response can be quite fast. That means that they do have people who they can train up to do these things manually. we'd hope that they would apply it in cases like this as well. Uh, Finding a community online for me was one of the most vital lifelines that I had as a teenager. And lucky I was able to tune into community radio stations as well. But here, you know, we're all thinking that things are getting better, the whole it gets better movement. Uh, And I know my parents definitely, or lots of parents would love to restrict all that content (laughs) from their kids. Uh, Don't make it easier for them. Yeah. 
Good point, Cassie. All right, well, in uh, news that crosses over with uh, our viewing habits online, a couple of pieces of Netflix news. Um, Netflix has started saying it could give you different versions of shows depending on how you're watching. And what it means is device-specific delivery. So if you're pushing content out there, you often get a lot of information about what devices people are using to access your content. What Netflix are proposing is that they will recut some of their original shows so that they'll be better to watch on a smartphone phone. That's a, that's a quite a challenging concept to me um, to know that if I consume media on one device versus another, I might consume something different to a friend of mine. And it's such a social thing, like consuming the arts, you know, you want to talk about it with, with your mates and um, who's going to make those decisions about what's significant and what's not. In some ways, I think it's it's a completely valid thing they're doing. You know, maybe you do want cut down versions of things or things that take advantage of different screen sizes because there's so many different options there. So it's like, well, you know, how do you start to make content for environments where it's going to be cut in several different ways? You know, does the director want to own that editorial choice? It's such an interesting area. So it'll, it'll be, um, yeah, fascinating to see, I guess, how that rolls out and what our experiences are with that. I mean, it's easy to forget, but not so long ago, we were watching VHSs that were recut from the cinema version, you know, and... Um uh, yeah, you'd have to try really hard to get the widescreen yeah. version and your parents would come in and say, why are you watching the version with the black on either side of the TV? You're too young for that, Cassie, but trust me, it happened. <laughs> but um, I, I would really, what I would like Netflix to do uh, next perhaps is something more interactive. So if you thumbsed up a particular episode where, you know, say someone got a love interest and you didn't actually like them. So you're like, no, I hate this. And then you see a different version of the show <laughs> where they get with someone else. And you're like, oh yeah, I loved, I love this. It's such a diverse cast, so many great characters. And someone else is like, what? That was the biggest white bread show I've ever seen. And I don't know about them filming infinite <laughs> versions of a show. However, I think you might have more luck with the banish this character from being, from even <laughs> appearing in my version of the show. That might be more feasible. <laughs> We'll have uh, to see. So you've talked about being able to thumbs up something. Actually, Netflix has said it will kill its five-star rating system in favour of a thumbs up, thumbs down. Now, I can imagine that that would be uh, a popular decision from their content producers because that way they don't have to deal with, you know, the murky waters of the three-star review, mm. you know, and the odds are you're more likely get to get the positive ratings unless you're abysmal. And then people will will do the thumbs down. I wonder if it's if it's motivated that way. Um, Netflix uh, have spoken to Business Insider and I read an article there that said that uh, the problem is people subconsciously try to be critics. I don't know why that would be a problem. But when they rate a movie or show from one to five stars, they fall into trying to objectively assess the quality instead of basing the stars on how much enjoyment they got out of it. I'm all up my own <laughs> enjoyment. I'm like saved five stars. Like, yeah, <laughs> excellent. No critical. But that is that is really true. And we see that problem often with, um, say, for example, Uber, where five stars is the expected minimum for drivers. But you're like, oh, no, they didn't go above and beyond. So they can't be five <laughs> stars. Sometimes they get five stars because they don't go above and beyond. It's like, oh, you left me alone and, and we, we sat in a very peaceful, comfortable silence. That's totally fine, five stars. I don't know. What if I rate the screen version, the mobile phone version, one star, <laughs> and uh, you rate it differently? That's, that's probably why they're doing the thumbs. Controversial. 
7.17 on Triple R. You're with Bite Into It with Cassie and Vanessa. Thanks for tuning in. We've just been joined in studio by Betty Sargent. She's a digital artist and storyteller. She's a children's author, illustrator and animator and clearly an overachiever who specialises in creating digital content which capitalises on the rise of mobile devices and interactive technology. She was the 2015-16 Melbourne Knowledge Fellow and Betty and her team will be exhibiting a prototype of The Playground and interactive media art project during Melbourne Knowledge Week in May and she's here to tell us more about that this evening. Welcome Betty. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So let's begin with the playground. That's a very inviting name. What is the playground? What's your conception of this project? Well the concept really is to involve people in technology and technology art And by that, I mean making artworks that involve some level of creative technologies. So we're making our own um, systems, sometimes hardware, sometimes software, mostly both, and running workshops as a part of the exhibitions and involving the public in co-creating the artworks. So in that way, I see it as a sort of playground where people can come and play, um, upskill, socialise and get involved with art and technology. So what sort of content are you covering in the workshops? Is this just for someone off the street to be able to come in or people who are already practising in that area? It really covers everybody. It's open for everybody, ages 10 and above. And it's, um, it's designed to upskill in kind of STEM areas. And so science, technology, engineering and math. And specifically in ways that you can design hardware and software. Now, I don't expect, you know, we're not running massive courses here, but it's really... Um, inviting seniors, children, people have always been curious, maybe design students who want to get involved in a project, in the back end of a project, what software are you using, how you're coding that, what, you know, what programs, what, you know. Um, And yeah, so it's, it's open. We've had a huge variety of people from highly skilled to beginners, to people who weren't even that curious and just kind of came off the street and ended up going, wow, you know, that's, I never knew these sort of projects existed. So we're quite open. So how do you begin to break down some of the preconceptions and the fears that maybe people bring to the table when you let them loose with a computer or um, something technological that they don't understand? Well, I suppose the first thing is we don't let them loose with a computer because parameters are one of the greatest things with learning anything, really. And giving people a structure without them even knowing that the structure's there, I suppose. And so what we do is invite them to play and we invite them to come and make art. And that's a fairly kind of open um, invitation, really. And people might say, oh, you know, I've never made art before. But it's, for example, with the playground, what the involvement is, is we've made these laser cut pieces that are right 10 by 10 centimetres. And anybody familiar with geocaching and that type of gaming where an item will be placed in a location, public location, the um, coordinates of that item will be placed on, in this case, a Facebook page. And it's also got a hashtag on the um, on the little item and so we're placing these around the state library and which is the venue that we're running this prototype in people can come and find them and these pieces connect together like a puzzle but it's not like a puzzle that we have predestined 
It's a puzzle that people can connect in lots of different ways. So that's where the play element comes in. Find, find these pieces, come to the gallery, connect them to this um, skeletal sculptural image we have in the middle and make a big um, collective sculpture. And so that's sort of a, a simple kind of open invitation. If they get involved in the workshops, then we start to um, involve them in how you make this type of um, art. And this is a prototype, but the full artwork, each of these items will be able to be tracked in space and time. So we're calling them spimes, which is not our, <laughs> our word, but it's a, um, you know, an existing word. A, Excellent, a um, new word for us. Yeah, look it up. It's really great. Spimes are great. So, and it was never meant to take off, but um, we're kind of uh, bringing back spimes. And so we're going to be able to track these pieces. Um, so part of uh, the other involvement that people can have is that they can take photographs of, not selfies, but of architectural um, textures and that type of thing, connecting people to the environment that they're in, trying to work against this, the way that technology can disengage us from our surroundings mm. and really look at ways that technology can bring us together socially and connect us to our environment. So they take um, images of the environment, upload it to the Facebook page, which teach them how to treat them well and so they can um, be incorporated into projection mapping um, that is um, images and videos that are projected onto the collective sculpture that's being made. Oh, great. So they can contribute in a number of ways. And when they start to kind of unwrap what's happening with the projection mapping that's all operating in real time and is tracking the movement and the changing shape of the sculpture as it changes over time as people co-create it, then that starts to unpick the, the necessity to code um, to be able to customise a system that operates in that way. And I think, well, for me at least, that's where it starts to get really interesting. And I think for other people too, that's where um, STEM goes from being quite dry to being this intriguing enabler. It's excellent to hear you talk about the collaborative and the co-creation aspects of your work. Um, you've got a small team working with you on, on this and I wondered how do you approach collaboration to create a project like this? Is it just as collaborative as the output? It really is. And I'm really glad you mentioned that because often I say we when I'm talking instead of me because I, um, often I may conceive of a project um, but other members of the team sort of grow it in ways that I would never have imagined. And so the final output is really a collective output. And um, I work closely um, with, you know, a, a team of creative coders and composers, artists. And, but there's also so many other people involved, curators, um, Melbourne Knowledge Week in this situation, the State Library of Victoria. So there's all sorts of other people that are intrinsically involved. And it's so important because you can't do things, um, so hard to do things of value alone. So it is a collaborative process, the making of the sculpture and the behind the scenes making of it. I think what's really interesting though is, uh, well, everything about this is really interesting, um, but you've, you've sort of spoken about using art as a way to get people interested in STEM. Uh, I think for a lot of our listeners as well, it's almost the art can be the part that's the most frightening uh, because 
you know, uh, like you said, you are putting the boundaries there and, and you're getting people in, but sometimes the idea of working on a collaborative art piece, uh, that seems, oh, that's airy-fairy, you know, that's that's not knowledge, but yet you're combining the two. Have you had any uh, sort of <laughs> strange reactions to, to the mix? Not... Um I don't know. Yes, I suppose we have had strange reactions because every, so many fantastic things in life are strange. Um, but I don't know that we've had any really negative responses in terms of the work that we do. We've had some highly skilled people come along who are interested in unlocking um, lateral creative aspects of their work um, because... You know, if you're really looking at innovation, which is a completely overused word, but if you look at what that word really means, then it does take creative thinking for those types of things to work. So you can have coders that have highly developed skills in a particular, um, you know, rational skill set um, that really want to unlock ways of applying that in creative ways. And creative technology is a great way to... Um, uh, unlock unexpected um, ways of using technology and I haven't found that people, I'm not really airy-fairy about art at all, I'm a really pragmatic person and um, I'm you know, not at all the, you know, a dreamer or a wow kind of person I, I'm totally feet on the ground, pragmatic but what I do is make art so I suppose, you know, and all the people I work with are very similar so I suppose people come along and they don't really see airy-fairy, they just see mm. stuff being done so you're in a really unique position as an artist. Most artists don't have um, the interactive element. Like a lot of artists don't have such a highly interactive element to their work. The the interaction can be a little bit more prescribed. Uh, when you have something that has an element of play, we've heard of things being play tested before, and we, you know, and with tech, we often think of user testing. Do you? get to do that with your art and does that mean that you then start thinking about whether art is successful or not successful? That's really interesting because yes, totally. And um, so another way of looking at this prototype at Knowledge Week is, is a user testing um, situation where um, the full-scale artwork is going to be developed and delivered in Ararat later in the year and because we're looking we're really wanting to work with regional communities because there's you know disadvantage over access to technology access to stem access to you know arts projects i mean the list can go on and in melbourne we have such a rich culture here of that that is personified so well in melbourne knowledge week and so we're taking it to um, Ararat later in the year and it also will be exhibited in South Korea. And so each time it will be exhibited, it's being scaled up. And so we're starting um, with a, a small prototype that we have currently that we're going to scale up and to the second prototype, really, um, that will be exhibited at Knowledge Week. And, I mean, user testing is such a kind of dry term, um, <laughs> but I really like prototyping and I really like sharing ideas. So I prefer looking at it as an open source process mm. so that we're being really open source about it. We're saying, look, there's lots of things we haven't solved here. We, we've thought it through really well and rationally we know we can get there, but we're not there. And so we're going to share successes and failures. I mean, they're kind of failures, but failure is so normal. It's just a step in the process. Um, so I'm not really on board with this whole kind of uh, failure thing that everybody's on because I, I'm just so used to... Um, not so much failure, but things um, needing to find creative solutions for things that haven't gone to plan. Mm. 
Um, and so I don't think it means it's the end of the line or, and with it at all. Um, I think it's a really natural part of any worthwhile and exploratory process. Mm. So it's all of those things and measuring that as well is a part of our thinking process now. We're not quite there with that, but we're definitely um, looking at how you can measure those kind of outcomes too. Fantastic. So your previous work includes The Storytelling Machine, which debuted at the Asia Culture Centre in Korea last year. Uh, The machine instantly transforms drawings from members of the public into animated 3D characters that roam in seven worlds that you created within the artwork. Um, That sounds fantastic for one, and I wish I'd seen it. Uh, Has the Playground project been informed by this in any way? And and have you sort of applied any any learnings from that thing or is it sort of very different? It's definitely an extension of that. Um, I made the storytelling machine again with the same team of people that we're working on the Playground with. Mm -hmm. And... um, the storytelling machine works in real time. It's made with touch designer and Python coding and it stores um, images and text in any language, these micro stories that the public have written. And it, um, it stores this information and randomly selects this information and um, delivers a collective story. And this will be different every time you see it. Um, and the collective story is really a quite a postmodern story, I suppose, no beginning, middle and end, but it's really an imprint of what it's like to live now and what's happening to our storytelling when automated systems are really, um, you know, I'm looking at social media being our dominant narrative mm. and how... And our autom- memory lives elsewhere as well. Mm. So much, yeah. And automation is really mm. sort of dictating how we create and consume and publish our stories. And this is our future culture making. So for me, that this is kind of a big issue for me and I was wanting to raise it to other people and just ask them, does this concern you at all or does this make you think that, you know, about what's happening with automation? Don't get me wrong, I love automation, but um, I like making automated works that help us to build culture together um, and to do that from a really kind of grassroots, bottom-up level. Uh, And Ultimately, in my work, I'm interested in how art and creative technology can help us be more socially and physically connected and engaged. And with the storytelling machine, I felt like we socially engaged people really quite well because they would come together and they could draw anything. It wasn't like a colouring in and they could draw any kind of character and be automatically animated. And it got people talking and seeing, you know, all the different languages of the stories, the micro stories all bunged up together, mashed together with... Um, different characters, really got people connected, but it didn't really physically engage them, except that this artwork doesn't exist online, that to physically go to a gallery space. Um, So with this artwork, um, I was really looking at how can we physically engage people. So hence the kind of bringing in the geocaching Mm -hmm. idea where people had to go and have a sort of a um, treasure hunt to locate things and to bring it in and and so yeah I was looking at drawing that element out further. That sounds tremendous Um, I'm looking forward to it very much if you are also liking the sound of that you can see Betty Sargent's The Playground um, at Melbourne Knowledge Week which runs from the 1st to the 7th of May this year and as you heard uh, this particular uh, event will be featured around the State Library 
And we'll really look forward to that being delivered in Ararat further down the track as a, as a play tested by the public piece. Thanks, Betty, for joining us. Pleasure. Cassie and Vanessa here, and we've just been joined by Alvaro Maz, a semi-regular Hello. bite attendee and Code for Australia legend. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It was great to be back. Yeah. So, Alvaro... Code for Australia is really engaged in the civic space and bringing um, government bodies up to speed with technology. And one of the ways that you have been influencing in this space is by creating a whole lot of fellowships where... Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what a fellowship is for Code for Australia? Sure. So what we do at Code for Australia is create... Um, opportunities for government to do things differently. And one of those ways is through this fellowship program where we embed really talented people, designers, engineers, and project managers into government agencies to try out those ideas that they've always had, but they haven't managed to do to do them. So because of procurement processes or bureaucracy or for whatever reason um, exist within government, just they haven't been able to do it. So through this program, we allow for those ideas to happen or just give them a go. Mm. And uh, you're here to tell us about a new initiative for you this year. What have you recently announced? Yes. So it's one of the, um, not to say that I've got favorite programs, but um, it is one of those programs that it's super cool and I'm super proud that we're we're running it. So last year we started a, a project that the Public Sector Innovation Fund, which is kind of like a fund for um, government agencies to, to get money to do things differently. Um, they funded us to provide three fellowships of three people for um, different state government agencies. So that run across three different government agencies. And this year we're running it again, but with a twist. What's the twist? Ooh. Tell us about the twist. <laughs> so the twist is that we're only going to be hiring female fellows. So um, at Code for Australia, something that we believe that um, it, the technology sector can be different to what it reflects. And we've got this notion at Code for Australia that also that the problems that we face today are only going to be able to be solved when there's a greater diversity of people being able to solve those problems. And at the moment, those the public institutions and the organizations that serve those public institutions don't reflect our communities, it's only going to lead us to a dead end. So we're taking a kind of like a, an, um, I would say an extreme approach. Um, ideally, we don't want to have to do these sort of things, but it's one of those steps needed to just showcase that it can be done and we're going to have awesome results. And that's very exciting. We're definitely here cheering you on, but I imagine that it wasn't an easy decision to come to uh, as someone who's previously worked at a all-female organization uh, I know that sometimes there can be quite a bit of, of backlash even if you're doing it for a specific reason um, what for those who those people who have been living under a rock um, can you tell us <laughs> a little bit of information about the gender disparity in tech in Australia so I don't have any statistics of where the tech sector lies. Like I know people bash on like the big com- companies of like Twitter and Facebook and and the fact that those that have m- metrics, they are metrics not on their board positions. Like it's all about like kind of like um, student interns or like very low level um, uh, or 
people that work in in kind of like this entry level of um, positions, but not necessarily at a managerial level. Um, I know the ones that like the metrics for us. So throughout the, since our existence for about three years, where we've been almost 50-50. And it's something that has happened kind of not necessarily so organically, like we have had to kind of like put that um, lens like we are actively looking for females to do this sort of stuff, but it's something that we care about and something that we are willing to to do. Um, so yeah, that's what I can I can tell you about our metrics, but not any, yeah. anyone else's metrics. So partnering with the public service is really core business for you. Um, mm. What has their response been to this initiative? So the Public Sector Innovation Fund team, so it's this team that manages this money for government to give away to government to do things differently. They've been awesome. Um, We sort of found like a group of people that are exactly like us or that they're trying to have the same outcomes but they're just inside government. And because they're inside government, they have to work with all these rules and, and things that they're not allowed to do. But they're trying to do the same thing that we're trying to do. And for them last year, it was more about like, let's try this out and showcase that nothing is going to blow up. Like you're going to have three people inside your agency for six months and you're going to see that it's going to be cool. And for them, when we started that project last year, they said, well, if they have a good experience, as in they, the government agencies with the fellows we're going, that's going to be success. And what happened was that we built stuff that it's saving um, millions of dollars saving time as well. And um, those projects actually continued beyond the six months that we were working there because we found that we could do so much more. And for the organizations, it's kind of like a refresh of ideas and a refresh of talent that is going into the, um, the organization to try out new stuff. I mean, it's quite incredible because I never actually thought about our government agencies as being in need or, um, you know, uh, sort of underprivileged in a way that they didn't have access to this sort of innovation or or these ideas. But it's such a great initiative um, that you've that you've been putting together Um, for anyone who's listening in and thinks, hey, um, I'm a I'm a female technologist who's amazing uh what do i need to do or, or what does applying actually involve sure so it's where expressions of interest are open so whether you go to codeforaustralia.org or code for victoria which is where what the program is called um we've got expressions of interest open and it takes maybe less than five minutes and we will get in touch with you as soon as we can. And if you're successful, what are you signing on for? What does it What does it look like to be a fellow? How much time does it take? Is it like full time or part time? And yeah, so it is um, full time. Um, one of our fellows described it to me the, um, when we were doing kind of like a retro the other day uh, at the end of the program, and she said, "It's been the hardest job I've ever had, but the most rewarding one." So it is one of those things that you may hate, but it's one of those things that you everything you do has impact and direct correlation to people's lives. So, so when you know that they're going into such a challenging um, task for them and, and maybe a challenging environment, how do you support your fellows? 
So luckily, we've got a team, or I've got a team now. So 12 months ago, I didn't have a, a <laughs> <laughs> so much of a team. So we totally bootstrapped the organization. Um, but now we have a team. We have a CTO, we have a, a COO, a marketing person. And um, yeah, so we take care of everything from like you as a person being cool, having fun, to like your technology stack being the most amazing thing that we can make it. And as well as staff, um, you seem to have tapped a lot into the community for uh, a range of mentors. How's your mentor bank looking at the moment? Um, is that because you're included in the uh, mentor look, bank? Oh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about me in the past, but uh, I mean, currently with your current batch of mentors, how's that going? Um, great. So, yeah, um, I so every we've got a, a, a bunch of people um, that have amazing skills and I've got probably a lot more knowledge than what we have and we get them to help um, the people that are in government. So anyone who becomes a fellow can um, pin them and say, hey, I want to catch up with you because you're really good at blah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we like some of the mentors specifically. Um, so Ezekiel Kigbo, who's one of our first mentors, um, he was catching up with you and he found it absolutely amazing to be able to have that um, kind of like totally outside his perspective because even myself and, and everyone who works at Code for Australia, we're drinking the Kool-Aid and, and we sort of have, we everyone develops ways of working. So it's interesting that while you're bringing people into government agencies who, to introduce them to a new perspective, mm-hmm. they also are being introduced to other perspectives through mentoring and, and um, expanding their worldview. It just seems to keep on going. <laughs> totally. And for them, it's also like to learn what government is like. What we have found is that people don't realise how amazing working in government can be. And it's that developing empathy part of um, to your work and also just the fact that there there is that appreciation of the things that are happening in government like often we see like oh Centrelink didn't work like what a um, piece of blank um, but that sort of stuff is is um it's it does take a lot of time to get those things going so I think it's one of the things that we're trying to uh, address as well in a, in a kind of like um, bigger picture that Problems in government are not government problems. Uh, those problems that are you know, being faced by governments is everyone's problems. And it's um, the, the way that I, w- I like to think about it is that um, democracy is, is a thing that has existed for a million years and it now needs to change. And to apply our democracy, it's going to take us all and it's going to take us forever. But then that's the point of it. Like we don't want to be waiting for the three-year ballot thing to put our our democracy into practice. I didn't think we were going to get to the meaning of life this evening, but (laughs) I I think we're getting dangerously close. One thing I've loved when um, when chatting to your fellows is that there's uh, this sense of um, civic duty and and pride that comes into play, and I think that's something that, you know, you see in the best public servants as well. Do you think um, that the, you know that this is the best way to kind of build an appetite for this sort of radical technological change in government? Or do you think that, you know, do you have ambitions to be working in other levels rather than maybe just at the grassroots level? So I I do think that it's got to be something from the outside in and from the bottom up. Um, It's not necessarily, we have seen um, awesome leaders across local, state, federal government wanting this, which is even better. 
but it does going to take those people that roll up their sleeves to do stuff. I don't think... I I know that Code for Australia is not going to be the only one working on this. We're going to need a lot of people and a lot of organizations doing this. And that's why we are opening opportunities for those people to get involved. Alvaro, always a pleasure having you in and talking about some of the opportunities that you're helping to create to improve um, our experience with government and uh, and the opportunities that you're giving to, to people to uh, expand their tech skills. So it's uh, congratulations on all fronts. Oh, thank you. And thanks for having me. Pleasure. 7.53 on Triple R for the last little bite of Bite Into It with Cassie and Vanessa. We've, uh, we've enticed Alvaro to stick around in studio till the end of the Still show. Here. Mostly because we want to get your take on our weird news of the week. So, Alvaro, this week uh, we've heard that scientists in Switzerland are working on new robotic technology that is fully edible. Can you imagine why we might need this technology? Anything edible should be um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, um, these are designed to be new types of medical robots. Edible medical robots. Try saying that a lot of times. (laughs) Is this like every um, TV show where someone's been shrunk down and has to go inside a body? It's honey, I shrunk the kids. It's (laughs) it's spaced. It's everything. Um, There was the Dennis Quaid one. What was that one? Inner space. That's the one I'm thinking. Rick and Morty. A more contemporary reference. (laughs) Sure, we could go with that. (laughs) So the robots feature gelatin-based actuators that allow for movement. So not only are they just like little robots in you, they're robots with a purpose, trying to get somewhere. I love it. And uh, they can break down and be digested, so they're only active for a little while. I love how many dogs and pets will totally get sick of uh, just eating this random stuff rolling around (laughs) the house. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's, I don't know, it's pretty great. Um, well, it seems interesting because the robots have to do their job before they get digested, so there's like a time <laughs> limit as well. It's Absolutely. Like- yeah, what is your success rate? You know, how strong is, is your edible robot? You could have edible robot battles. Yes. Anyhow, I don't know how you'd watch that, but uh, I have a dream, Cassie, that, <laughs> that our weird news of the week will result in robot wars in my stomach. <laughs> That's just made me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, uh, let's jump to events. We've already covered a few opportunities. If you're interested in being a female fellow with Code for Victoria, then um, do hop onto the Code for Victoria website and suss that out and hopefully you've also got melbourne knowledge week blocked out in your diary for may um so you can get down to see betty Sargent's the playground and interact with it and actually be a part of it absolutely but uh, another event that's upcoming is web directions respond conference so that's the web directions conference where they focus on web design they've extended their early bird tickets um so they're now available just till the 31st of march they'll be in sydney melbourne and brisbane and melbourne will be the 8th and 9th of May. The speakers this year include one of Byte's very own, Laura Summers. Um, So she's an amazing uh, developer and designer and uh, you'd be well worth hearing her. But they've also featured Mina Markham, who's a senior UI engineer for Hillary for America's campaign, and she'll be talking about design systems. We've got Vitaly Friedman, the founder of Smashing Magazine on Responsive Design, and Elizabeth Allen, um, who's a UX researcher from Spotify on Conversation interactions which is such a hot topic right now so yeah do suss that out if you're in the web development area 
And uh, Cassie, I believe we've got a queer film festival coming up that might have some IT elements. Yeah, so uh, the Melbourne Queer Film Festival is on at the moment. Um, I've had the opportunity to check out some of the shows already and so I'm very excited. Uh, But there is an experiential screening uh, on the 23rd to the 25th of March. That starts tomorrow. Um, It's a short film about motherhood, sexuality and grief based on the short story by Christos Solkis. Chalkus. Chalkus. I need to learn my pronunciation. Um, <laughs> Triple R listeners, though, will be able to pronounce uh, his name better than me because he hosts Superfluidity uh, on Tuesday nights at 8. So this viewing experience, it's taking place in a specially designed installation. Uh, it's about 30 minutes. It's free and it's designed to heighten your viewing experience. So if you're up for something a little bit different. It's really uh, interesting how all the film festivals have jumped on various VR and AR experiences lately particularly how they're trying to bring like a collaborative, like a joint viewing aspect to those because that's a real challenge. I don't think anyone's quite nailed it yet, but uh, I love the idea of trying all of these ones out. Yeah, and I mean, film festivals do bring people together, but also having that individuality for this experience is just for you. Uh, that's something kind of special. Mm, mm. Well, well done, Queer Film Festival. <laughs> thank you for tuning in tonight. We want to thank our guests, Betty Sargent and Alvaro Maz. And uh, we're going to be back next Wednesday evening with more Bite Into It. Do check out the podcast. We've got an amazing podcaster, Tyler, who's been very diligent and uh, we're super lucky to have him. So shout outs to Tyler. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, Up next is the International Pop Underground with Anthony Carew. So do stay around for that. Good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.